0: producing audio for every need and Greta Pope Entertainment for the finest in entertainment. Today, we have a legendary singer songwriter with us. In addition to being a legend, he's a great guy. Dan Navarro's journey began as a songwriter and singer. He penned the Grammy nominated Pat Benatar song, We Belong. His music has also been recorded by many others, including The Bangles, Jackson Brown, Dave Edmonds, and so many others. Dan is also a very successful voice actor. What a thrill it is to have Dan with us today. Ladies and gentlemen, Dan Navarro.
1: Dr. Greta, the thrill is all mine. It's great to see you again.
0: (laughs) It's great to see you. How have you been?
1: You know, I've been fine. I've been good. Um, Somehow. I'm not sure sure how. I'm busier than I've ever been. That's wonderful. Um, Well, there have been a multitude of things to do to make up for what we've lost. And if you just sit and go, well, that's just awful, then it goes by you. So I've been mainly, you know, I'm normally on the road a lot. I come to Chicago at least three or four times a year to perform for 30 years now. And I've been shut my last show um, before shutdown was March 8th in Valparaiso, Indiana. And uh, I came home on the 9th, and we shut down the 15th, and I started streaming that night. And I've I've done over 200 performances since then, uh, anywhere from two to three hours, and they get a little silly, and they get fun, Mm -hmm. and they're worth it. And, you know, I've been lucky in in my voice work in that um, I've been still doing ADR on Family Guy and American Dad remotely, so I've done 33 episodes from home. That's been incredibly handy. Um, Half a dozen voiceovers for commercials, uh, things like that, writing a couple of songs to submit for a couple of films. That's great. Staying busy and engaged and planning, plotting the next move on what it's <laughs> going to be.
0: That's great. You know, it it sounds like you pivoted immediately. I mean, when things locked down, you really had a sense of what to do and how to do it. And how did you come was, back to your thoughts?
1: It was actually sort of happenstance. I had been streaming one song maybe every five shows from the road for about three years. Um, I'd be someplace in, in, a, in a show in a little club and I'd hand the phone to somebody. They were doing a vertical. And I'd say, just just hit the button. And hi, everybody, here I am live in, in Easton, Maryland at the, at the Stoltz Listening Room. Uh, there are 4,000 people in this six by six room and make stuff up and sing one song and then sign off. So the notion of going out that way I saw what the engagement was. So I did one song from my couch over there. The next day I said, well, I guess I'll see you tomorrow. And it was 30 minutes. Wow. The next day I said, well, I guess I'll see you tomorrow. It was two hours and we were off to the races. Wow. So it, it I don't know what made me think I had to do it daily, but there was something about, i am not I'll see you next week, yeah. but okay, I'll see you tomorrow. Wow. And a group started coalescing around these daily visits um, that turned into almost like family reunions. It was uh, people I'd never met, people who didn't know the music, a lot of people I'd known for years, and they're all gathering and they're all chatting like crazy. They're the fans at the show who are yakking during the show and it drives you crazy, but you can't hear them. So they'd be sitting there with this chat going by, making comments. Then they started developing ideas about what I do and they gave me a nickname, DFN for Dan F Navarro. And we all went with it and they got me through it and I've gotten them through it and we're not done. So that was the start of it. The business part, the fact that I still got work was was great and coincidental because it's voice work. I'm, I don't do on camera and um, you know I'm waiting to get significantly older and ugly up so I can get more work on a camera, but um, I do the voice work and it, it'll, and it's, it still has managed to, to persist.
0: That's wonderful. So let's go back to the beginning of your career. Where are you from? How did you get started singing and playing guitar and all of those things?
1: It was, it was a roundabout road. I was born in Los Angeles and uh, raised in a small Mexican border town, California-Mexico border called Calexico, California. I went kindergarten through 12th grade down there and uh, came back to Los Angeles to go to UCLA. Uh, studied music there. I was in the marching and concert bands and in the men's glee club. And I got this wild hair that I wanted to write songs. So I bought a guitar in my sophomore year and learned to play it and started making up little songs. And I got fairly focused on it. I started carrying the guitar in the car to play at stoplights and making up songs about my absolutely relentlessly bad personal life. And um, it started getting traction among my community. I entered a song contest my senior year at UCLA, and I won it. Um, It led to a publishing uh, relationship. I won't call it a publishing deal, but I decided to keep pushing. And two years after I left school, I got a song on someone else's album. And I thought, I like this.
0: That is great. Everything
1: stalled after that for seven years. So I was working for Tower Records. I went to work as a singing waiter, um, and it was a dead-end job. But at that singing waiter job, I met another guy who was there at a low point in his career, and we hooked up and we started a partnership that lasted over 30 years. He's the guy, Eric Lowen, who I co-wrote We Belong With, uh, the, the Pat Benatar hit. He passed away in 2012. Um, but we started writing together. We were in bands together. We started a duo. And it sort of, you know, the writing career took off in 1984 when we were in our early 30s. I mean, that's, you know, yeah, I'm over 60. And it was... Um, Real fortuitous. We dove into the songwriting community. Next thing we knew, we really wanted to perform. Nobody cared. So we're in our mid-30s going, you know, nobody cares. We have a career as songwriters. Let's just go play some corner bar and do what we want to do. Acoustic mm-hmm. duo, Simon and Garfunkel for the, for the 90s, late 80s, really. And just do it for love. And that became a key to us, which is when we quit thinking about outcome and mm-hmm. thought about the journey it started working somebody walked in who didn't really know our work knew that you know could hear that we had written we belong and said i want to sign you a record contract and danged if wxrt in chicago didn't start playing that like it was the national anthem loyalties and friendships and a relationship that's persisted to this day um lynn bramer was on my stream just visiting as a spectator about two days ago he's a, a dear friend and so we just figured let's see how long we can make this this car run and we never ran out of gas.
0: Wow, that is fantastic. Absolutely. Now, I want to go back and ask you a question. You said you were sure. in a marching band. What instrument were you playing at that time?
1: Well, my, I played French horn. Oh, okay. My high school didn't march French horn, so I played snare drum. Oh. And then when I got to college, I said, I'm a snare drummer. And they kind of went, no, you're not. You're a French horn <laughs> player. Because they had some seriously world-class drummers there you know, Buddy Rich on steroids, you know, Buddy Rich at 19 kind of a thing. Yeah. So I switched back over to French horn and I played that in the concert band in the, that was doing symphonic works with no strings, in the marching band for UCLA, which was way fun, saw lots of great football. The basketball band when Bill Walton was at UCLA, so I saw all those games from the floor. I had Jack Nicholson seats and Spike Lee seats watching those games. Um, and then the jazz band, and and sophomore year, I switched over in addition and started singing in the Men's Glee Club, which taught me almost everything I know about vocals and blending and harmonies. Wow. Um, it was that's an immersion. Great. It was an era when there were no pop music courses. There was no pop music major. There was no music business major. Yeah. It was very classical jazz and opera.
0: Yeah. I was it. Those days. That's right. Wow. That is very, very, very cool. So... Tell us about when you segued, or didn't really segue, but when you began uh, doing the voice acting, how did that come about?
1: That started out, um, there was, it was about, um, <clears throat> excuse me, it was about f- uh, four years after We Belong came out. A friend of mine called me up and, from college, who was one of the Glee Club members. Do you want to sing on a jingle in my, in my um, garage? Uh, yeah, it was non-union. And I sang on the jingle, and there was a woman on the date who contracted a lot of union um, sessions in Spanish. She huh. said, Do you sing in Spanish? And I said, I did. I didn't lie, but I didn't speak Spanish. I'm, I'm Latino, Mexican American. I didn't speak Spanish very well at the time. But I said, Yeah. And I gave her a demo. And she called me a month later for a Miller Beer commercial that turned out to be the session was produced by Jorge Calandrelli, who wound up an Oscar nominated songwriter for Crouching Tra- Dragon, Hidden Tiger, and Grammy winning arranger for Tony Bennett. Guy named Casey Porter was on the session. He had lived in Guatemala, and he became a Grammy winner for Carlos Santana and Ricky Martin. Uh, good God! And and Michael Cruz, who also composed jingles. So the three of us are in there, and I start working. All of a sudden, in my at 36 years old, I start working in sessions, um, in union sessions in Spanish. One day in 1994, somebody calls me up. Hey, we need you for a session. It was um, an agency I'd worked for many many times. And they said, This is for Toyota. I get there and I go, What am I singing? They go, You're not singing, you're going to be voiceover. We thought you'd be good. So overnight, I became the, Southern, the voice of Southern California Toyota dealers. And they said, You're going to get two to three commercials a quarter. Um, so we're going to help you get an agent. And so agents were going, Well, this is free money because they didn't have to get me the work. And I got a, a good agent. And it's been, I've had a 25 year relationship with my agency. Uh, with my agents, and, and I love them, uh, innovative artists uh, out of Los Angeles, and it kind of went from there. And inside it, initially, they were sending me up only for Spanish language spokesperson, mm-hmm. you know, los Toyota del 95 ya están aquí, and you do that kind of thing, right? And then they realized we think you have broader range, and really like, okay, and they start sending me up on, actor roles and character roles. Then it led from that to them putting me up for animated features and animated series, and I landed a couple of them. So it basically just kind of spread like that St. Augustine grass they have in Florida that grows (laughs) sideways. You put a one-foot strip, and in a year, it's covered your entire lawn. It kind of went
0: that way. That's fantastic. That's fantastic. So what have been some of your favorite voice projects that you've
1: done? Ooh, well, they vary. Um, For the last 20 years, um, I took a one-time gig doing ADR, Walla, noise voices with four other voice actors on a little series that, um, the little series it could, it lasted for about 26 episodes, of my work, and then it went away. It was canceled. Mm-hmm. And then two years later, it came back, and that's Family Guy. So I've been working on Family Guy for 20 oh. years. I've been working on American Dad since the first season. Um, among my two favorites, I was the voice of Chakal, the big monster in the um, animated feature The Book of Life, where I got to say things like, I hate bullfighters. Give me the medal, how the girl pays. And, but it was, and again, it was one of those situations. I was a late addition, I was an ADR character because they'd cast, the director had cast himself in the role and at the last minute decided I want a real voice. And I got, so I was looping. I wasn't, you know, it wasn't pre-animation like a lot of the voice work is in animation. And it was a very cool credit. I'm sitting there, and I've got, oh, my God, I got a title card. Uh, (laughs) The other one was in 2016. I was hired to do nine sessions impersonating the voice of Javier Bardem in Pirates of the Caribbean 5. Or I said things like, this this boy, I were rocking his shoes. Uh, No, 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 those were not sailors. They were pirates. Pirates. And, you you know, you make your face do funny funny. things so that you can sound like (laughs) you have to sound, and... The other one, wow. I'll just say one more before we move on, is I was working with Mark Mothersbaugh from Devo on a movie he was scoring called Envy. I thought it was going to be the biggest hit of the year because it was Jack Black, Ben Stiller, Rachel Weisz, um, and Amy Poehler, <clears throat> Christopher Walken. We're talking Oscar winners. <clears throat> directed by Barry Levinson, who did Diner and The Natural. And I'm going, this is, and I'm singing this part. They didn't know what they wanted. We tried some things. A couple months later, they said, we're going to try it again. And we're gonna do kind of a bluesy sound, like a sort of, you know, acoustic delta blues. And so I did the whole voice, kind of like Leon Redbone. I sang, you know, the turkey's got his gobbler, the lion's got his pride, and sang it like that. And the director, Barry,'s just going, I love this. They added seven cues. I narrated the picture. And then the movie came out, and everybody hated it. And it died an instant death. I have made dozens of dollars off that picture but I'm still proud of the work and it was really fun. I'm sitting there in the studio with Barry Levinson and Mark Mothersbaum. Bruno Kirby came to visit and I'm just going, how did I get here?
0: That's fantastic, that is fantastic. So we have a question yes. from our audience and the question is, to treat a room for voice recording, what materials give professional results and how much do I really need to spend?
1: You need to think of what the purpose is and the purpose is to prevent reflection off of hard 90 degree angle walls you can put up all kinds of professional baffling but what's going to do you really well and there is actually a website that sells them there's a website where you can get a sort of metal frame canopy, very lightweight aluminum frame that's kind of like those canopies you stick in your backyard when you're doing a picnic and you hang this, these walls on it that are made of basically moving blankets, quilted moving blankets. They make them with grommets that you can stick up with cup hooks or command hooks on your walls to just basically deaden the reflection so it doesn't come back at you. They make little, for about a hundred bucks, you can get these arc-shaped foam things that you put in front of you so that when you're speaking into it it reflect it doesn't reflect the foam absorbs it there are no 90 degree angles nothing's bouncing around and it works real well i'm in my living room and i don't have any of that stuff put up but partly i'm using a dynamic microphone instead of a condenser microphone your your neumann tlm 103s your u87s those are all condenser microphones the blue yeti is a condenser microphone it'll pick up loads of sound from around, including that reflection. A dynamic mic has a narrower frame. This is designed for broadcast. It's designed for voice. And uh, there's this. There's the Electro-Voice RE20. There's the Rode Podcaster, which is a USB mic. There's the Rode Procaster, which is an XLR mic. And then there's the Rode Broadcaster, which is even higher level. The whole idea is these mics are designed to maximize voice, eliminate side noise. You can work them very, very closely without overloading them. And that helps. The greater the distance between your voice and your mic, the greater the room is, the space is for the room to come in. So that will help you deaden the sound. You don't need to go to a lot of trouble. I've seen people get cardboard boxes, line them with foam rubber, and just set them up. Or those little collapsible storage cubes that are made of like vinyl, and they'll fold flat and you pop them open, you stick your mic inside, you talk into it, and you won't get the reflection. It's easy and it doesn't have to be expensive
0: that's great that's good to know now you were talking about your setup there at your home so tell us a little bit about your video setup as you're streaming and just give us a little bit of information about um how you're streaming
1: i'm streaming using a logitech brio webcam um it's a 4k cam nobody on the planet streams in 4k which means you've got sufficient headroom to get 1080p or 720 out there it'll do 1080 at 60 frames which means it won't do jerky motion um it won't blur. Um, I'm using a pair of Viltrox VL20 video lights that are on a remote, which means if I want to, I can turn them off and on. And it's uh, you know, it's just there goes one, and here goes the other on the other side. And so they're across the room from me, inexpensive relatively. These cost uh, about $180 a pair with stands and remotes. Um, I didn't pay for the soft boxes. I'm hanging white T-shirts on them. And it it you know taps down the sound, the, the the brightness a little bit, um, and I've got it at a safe distance so I can operate it. I use a piece of six dollar software called Webcam Settings where that I can control the camera and zoom in and out. Um, and so basically, it's a certain amount I did a certain amount of research by doing Google searches and figured out what worked worked best for me. The Brio camera is two hundred dollars. You can get a, a Logitech C920 all day and all night for $69, and it's pretty darn good. Mm-hmm. Um, I like this a little better, uh, in particular color representation and sharpness, but the other will work perfectly well.
0: That's great. That's And great.
1: frankly, the best one out there is your iPhone. Your iPhone's got a wonderful camera in it and a pretty good mic if what you're doing is just, you know, if you're not dealing with electric instruments or multiple whatevers,
0: mm-hmm. um
1: My first 25 streams were just into the phone. My next 40 or 50 were into a separate microphone made by Shure called the SM7. I'm sorry, the MV Mary Victor 88 Plus. It's designed to sit on a uh, stand. And by the way, if I can screen, well, if you let me screen share, I'll show you a picture of it. But um, Mary Victor 88 Plus, it comes with a phone clip, a little baby tripod that looks like this. And when you are not using it as a tripod, it's actually a handle. You can hold your phone and point the mic at whatever. It points right at me, operated by software. I did that for about 50 streams, and then I switched over to a mixer using two mics for my guitar, one for the voice going through a mixer that's got USB output, and built-in reverb. (laughs) And and so, you know, it's a matter of I did the research Mm -hmm. to think it through to keep it budgeted down by taking the, instead of just going well that'll just do the job um,
0: great that's great we will continue our chat with Dan Navarro next week the business savvy singer podcast is brought to you by the private music eternal wolf music and Greta Pope entertainment let us know if you know of a singer who is having great success in the music business We'd love to share their story and their journey on this podcast. Send your emails to info at gretapope.com. We've had a great time with you today. See you next time on the Business Savvy Singer podcast. The Business Savvy Singer.